Hello, film ghouls. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. We're back with Hello Thanksmas, talking all about holiday cheer, and we're working through the month of October in our Halloween films. And finally, my friend from LA and fellow partisan entertainment intern, Alberto Arrive, called in to talk about Tim Burton's 1988 spook-filled classic, Beetlejuice. All right, my buddy from LA, Alberto Arrive, is here. We've been trying to do this all year since we first met. We wanted to try and get you on. Uh, And so thanks for coming on to talk about Beetlejuice, uh, your personal pick. Obviously, we're chugging along in the Halloween section of Hollow Thanksmas, talking about how... Um, movies set around the Halloween time are uh, capture the spirit of the holiday itself. And Beetlejuice is an interesting choice because we're kind of breaking the rules. It doesn't necessarily take place around October 31st, but it kind of feels like it does. And I want to yeah. know why, what, what made you pick Beetlejuice? What's your relationship to the movie? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the pod. Very excited mm-hmm. to be here. I remember when you first told me about it way back when you could still... Uh, work in a communal office with somebody else a few months yeah, ago. Of course. But, um, no, the way I chose the movie, I mean, it was weird because the movie also kind of tricked me. Because you asked me to be on and I was researching Halloween movies because I knew I wanted to do a Halloween one over like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And I was looking at all these online lists and Beetlejuice kept popping up and I was like, oh, Beetlejuice, like I have like weird a weird memory with that movie. Like I don't remember anything about it, but I always remember the guy like Beetlejuice and I remember that the whole like you have to say it three times and I just remembered that it was like like a whack film like it was just like yeah <laughs> crazy stuff happens in it and in one of the list one of the lists on the internet said it took place in Halloween so I was like okay perfect it's like a movie I want to talk about and rewatch and it apparently takes place in Halloween but it does it as we both know now it does not <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no yeah to be honest it's- I have memories um, my relationship to the movie is like, I know I saw it as a kid, you know, <laughs> like that's all I had before I rewatched it. Like I knew like the, that image of like the shrimp hands coming out in the dinner scene is like seared uh-huh. into my brain. So that's how I mm-hmm. knew I'd seen the movie. And I was like, I knew it was Tim Burton. And I was like this super like cracked Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton performance. So I was like, let's watch this. <laughs> this is going to be a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a Big, big movie from my childhood. Um, I watched it uh, all the time. I remember the first thing that I definitely remember sticking out to me, but I think before I saw it was I remember seeing the trailer a lot for like the Warner Brothers like home movie collection or something like that. Maybe it was Universal, I remember. But it was like I kept seeing the shrimp hand. I kept seeing uh, him rise up out of the the model, you know. Yeah, it's it's showtime, all that classic shit. Um, and then finally, when I watched it, I I want to say I was I was young. I was like maybe seven or eight, and I loved all of. I was big into Tim Burton as a kid, so I like watched all of that shit, like that Edward Scissorhands, obviously the Batman films, and this. And I remember, you know, Michael Keaton being the the standout, 
and just thinking of how electric the performance is and the character became instantly iconic. So I was really attached to that. And it was, it was just so much fun. And then going back to it now, I mean, we, we just did this podcast about um, our favorite movies of the 2000s. And mm-hmm. the big thing that we were saying for that is how important it is to revisit films and, um, you know, have going back to things when you, uh, that you used to love as a kid with an adult mindset can really change your perspective on it in both a good and a bad way. And I got to say, this movie definitely held up as an adult. It was still so much fucking fun. And it was, um, it definitely got me excited for Halloween and all that. But it was, there were some little things in the story that like really popped out to me that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I actually noticed. Like I didn't, that they just went like right over my head as a kid. I can't believe I saw that movie as a kid. <laughs> I can't believe I was allowed now rewatching it. No, yeah, like, again, like, I had a very, very vague me- memory of the movie. So when I was, like, looking at the at the opening credits and they're like, oh, like, Winona Ryder's in it, I was like, oh, I'm sure she's playing one of the adult characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. Little did I know she was going to be playing, like, the ultimate goth, angsty yeah. teen it's the most Tim Burton character ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's there are so many surprises in the movie that I was not ex- like I I had no idea it went this deep in terms of like the whole afterlife bureaucracy thing. Yeah, as well as like I, it's a really cool idea of how it's um it's ghosts having their house haunted by humans. Yeah, which I feel uh-huh. like is a pretty like interesting and obviously like. You can you can totally see why Tim Burton would want to make this movie upon reading the script. Yeah, absolutely. I love the kind of procedural element of when they go into the afterlife and try and talk to Juno. Like that whole that whole um, world is so Tim Burton with the the, the kind of the graphic image of death, but also uh, easily digestible. Like it's almost cartoonish, yeah. but it's realistic at the same time. It's very strange. Yeah, um, and. And yeah, seeing Winona Ryder again, because like we have this whole 30-year history with her as being one of, you know, an actress that's always kind of been there. Uh, and uh, she's obviously been in the Halloween spirit for the past four years with Stranger Things. Um, yeah. So she's she has always kind of kept coming back, not only to just this kind of the spooky season, but just in our lives as an actress. And it was great to see her early on because there was something really special there. She was so easily relatable. She had, she was the most grounded. She had a lot of emotional problems in, yeah, in I here. Think, like, like, she's, she's definitely the best, the most defined character in the movie, mm-hmm. I would say. And and then you have Alec Baldwin and, and Gina Davis fairly earlier in their careers too as this married couple. Um, and it, I remember when I was a kid, because I knew who Alec Baldwin was um, from various movies, but like he didn't, when I first saw him, I was like, that doesn't look at all like Alec Baldwin because he's like, <laughs> he's so much, so much thinner. He's got the parted hair. He's got the glasses. Like he just didn't. He's handsome. Yeah. He like, what didn't seep into the crazy kind of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin that we eventually, you know, kind of come to associate him with. And, you know, you kind of feel the, um, like they, you can tell that him and Gina Davis like have a really good like close relationship, and they're just this average um, married couple who are just trying to start a family, and then this crazy fucking story just <laughs> unravels as it does. <laughs> yeah, it, it was wild for me because I do think in like any in like anyone maybe like older people not, but like especially for our generation, like we think of Alec Baldwin as like Thirty Rock Alec Baldwin, you know, mm-hmm. like like. 
slightly older with like the the not salt and pepper hair but like blonde and kind of graying spiked up hair and like he's in these smarmy like boss roles and watching this again and then i also watched hunt for red october for the first time oh nice earlier this year and i was like why i feel like we didn't capitalize on like leading man alec baldwin enough while we could like i, I like this i like leading man alec baldwin yeah leading man alec baldwin went into a lot of very interesting <laughs> direction. So he's in this. Hunt for Red October is interesting because they try to make, because he's Jack Ryan, they try and make him an action star. Um, and then he does, then he becomes kind of the the heat check actor of being in supporting roles like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and just throwing like, throwing a hundred like right out of the gate. And <laughs> he's, he's another one though, who's kind of always been there in one way or another. And obviously he's, dabbled more into comedy in the last decade or so with 30 Rock and being a prevalent figure on um, SNL. Um, so, uh, but he, but yeah, here he's so internal. Like he is not the main star of the movie. Michael Keaton is. Yeah. And, you know, though Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis do have the clear arcs and uh, at the center of the story, Michael Keaton is really who takes over. And I think that's why this movie kind of, um, really resonates with our generation too is because of how iconic looking the character is of Beetlejuice and his mannerisms and the voice and just the the overall presence of him because like it's so like I know so many people who this is a staple of their Halloween um, because of you know either childhood attachment or whatever I mean I just think it's so interesting that a movie like so specific and so odd and so strange really like can live on to our generation like that. Cause you think like we would have um, other famous icons um, in terms of characters for Halloween or, or what, what have you, but this one really stuck with us, I think. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, I think there's something about it where the movie kind of feels more like a, like a tone piece or like an atmosphere movie more than like a, like a story or like a journey while like there's obviously like a plot to it. I feel like it's very loose, you know, like the rules there's like, I feel like they almost kind of break the show. The movie kind of breaks its own rules a few times. Like we kind of diverge into these different scenes that explore the world. And I feel like it gives it, it's very much a movie. Like the first time I watched it for this, cause I rewatched it twice for the podcast. Um, the first time I watched it with friends and I feel like since it's like a movie that's not really much about like the plot of it all you can kind of it can kind of be a communal experience of all just all of us just watching these super like unhinged visuals of like different kind of horror imagery and like I mean I wouldn't even call this a horror movie I feel like if there was a spooky genre I feel like this movie is like the exemplary like spooky film you know it's just Mm -hmm. like it just kind of has spooky vibes throughout and I feel like that makes it like a very rewatchable movie just because also there's so many memorable uh, set pieces and different pieces of set design and practical effects. That's one of the parts that definitely caught me off guard rewatching it again, just the amount of built presence on the screen, you know, like obviously there was no computer effects and the ones that are in this movie are probably the part that holds up the worst out of the whole yeah. thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a hilarious effect almost. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's almost maybe stood the test of time because it's such a, again, it's, it's almost more of like a vibe that you can keep coming back to more than like, oh, I'm watching it for the plot, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think the, the plot itself is very easy to follow, but the movie 
moves quickly. It's got a lot of memorable lines of dialogue. Um, <laughs> it's it's very funny. Uh, it's it's lighthearted. I mean, there are it goes in a couple dark places, but not for too long. It's not like an emotional investment necessarily, yeah. like a heavy emotional invest. And it's it's just it's really good, um, clean fun. And it and the fact that you can revisit it and see things like there were certain like costume design things that I didn't notice before um, mm-hmm. before going back to it now. And uh, I mean the production design is um, is fantastic all throughout. And you mentioned the the CGI, the the Saturn effects with the green screen is so. <laughs> Late '80s, but it's funny and it gives it this kind of interesting charm to it. Um, yeah, I, wa- I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about Tim Burton really quick. I, I think one of the, you know, like him or not, one of the more uh, recognizable auteurs of uh, the last thirty years or so, and ha- like early on had a very distinct style with um, kind of melding in elements of stop motion with kind of gothic architecture, darker stories that also were beautiful and almost childlike. Like he does a good job of capturing childhood wonderment and childhood um, uh, horrors at the same time, like meshes them together really well. Like obviously something like PB's Big Adventure um, and Edward Scissorhands. I think Edward Scissorhands is kind of the, uh, the most like one of the most iconic, but this one is interesting because it's it's definitely more light and going for laughs a little bit more. Like Edward Scissorhands has some gags in it, but that's a very that movie is all about reflecting and kind of depressing at the end of it. Like when you think about yeah. like how it ends, um, I, I haven't seen Edward Scissorhands. I really mm-hmm. I'm definitely probably going to watch it this month for the vibes. And now that yeah. I've seen this one, because I I've heard it's one of his more complete pieces as far as like the movies that he was really passionate about making, mm-hmm. which I think has kind of dwindled away as the years have gone on. Yeah. But I um, definitely want to watch that one. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was doing some research um, leading up to this podcast, like about the background of the movie and like, I don't have a specific quote, but it, it was kind of said that like uh, people kept offering him different movies after Tim, after Pee Wee's big adventure because that was such a big hit and he knew that he didn't want to be like a like a lighthearted comedy director because I, and as as we see that's not really like his aesthetic um then when he saw the original draft for this he thought what like while the like he he even he even felt that like the script didn't have much to say he saw it as an opportunity to do all these artistic exercises with the different set pieces and the different um worlds that we explore and all the opportunities you have for that artistic expression that you see in the movie. And I feel like that's a big part of the success that the movie has. Like, I feel like it's more scene by scene. It feels like they're like, let's do something interesting with the scene more than like, let's keep trotting the plot along. And I feel like you could tell that, especially in the, in the scene where the new, where like the rich family, I forget their last name, the Maitlands. Mm-hmm. Are are moving in, and uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are trying to scare them. And you see the they open the thing, and Gina Davis is like uh, is hung on it, and like rips her hat off, and it's like yeah. ah, and like as an audience, are like oh, that's spooky. And then they turn around, and they're like, this is in the hideous closet. Like it's like yeah. <laughs> all these different like kind of horror or like spooky subversions onto like what you think is going to happen in the scene, even like the. On second watch, I really appreciated the 
the opening sequence where it's like all these helicopter shots of the the town they moved in on and then it really seamlessly fades into the miniature mm-hmm. and then when it comes into the house if you didn't notice you're like okay that's kind of a weird looking house and they're like oh shit and there's like what you think is like a giant spider calling out the back of it but then you zoom out and it's a miniature and things yeah. like that i think that's that's a big part of the movie success is like the different almost exercises i feel like burden and his team are doing throughout yeah, and he does a lot of those just throughout his career, especially in the 80s and the 90s. Um, that's when you know he kind of reigns supreme of the using models and having darker tones and lighting, uh, but capturing this kind of gothic architecture, but not making it so grim. Like there's obviously yeah. darker tones, but it was so... Like those Batman movies, like Batman and Batman Returns, are the, another big part of my childhood, but they're also just like he kind of met in the middle of a darker story with also a little bit lighter tones to make it so that like as a kid there's some like kind of graphic stuff that happens in those movies and oh, yeah. but it but it's it's hidden enough and but also um to where it's not like it, it doesn't turn you away from it it's not um it doesn't glorify anything it it feels real but it's grounded and, um, but then like later on, you know, his career has gone in a very interesting way. He tries to keep the style, but I feel like some people aren't open to that Tim Burton style anymore. Like once we got, um, Alice in Wonderland and, uh, like dark shadows, I think people were kind of sick of the formula at that point. And then uh, after that, he made big eyes, that drama with, Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz, which I think is interesting because halfway through his career, he did movies like Big Fish and Ed Wood, which are honestly like two of my favorites of his because of how they, those two movies have a a lot of meaning in them. And you can tell more so Ed Wood than, um, than Big Fish. His, his style is very clear, but the focus is on the characters and the journey that they take. Um, and like Ed Wood's a Hollywood story and Big Fish is a, about a family uh, and a son trying to connect to his father. Uh, and it's, and again, regardless of whether you like him or not, he has very clear images that he really likes and he kind of taps into your childhood in like some way or another. Like, again, it's that childhood wonderment thing. Yeah, for sure. I think... One thing I'm noticing with this movie and looking at some of his later ones, um, especially the studio films he's made, I, don't, I to be honest, I haven't seen Big Eyes yet. It hasn't mm-hmm. crossed my path. Dark Shadows is a wild movie. Yeah. I can't believe that movie got made. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that shit is crazy. But um, no, but was it? Oh, sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. But with something like Dumbo or the Miss Peregrine's okay. Home for Peculiar Children, uh-huh. I feel like the thing that those movies really illustrate is that the like they I feel like falter where Beetlejuice gains in that I feel like the excessive use of CGI kind of neuters all the feelings that Tim Burton's style can bring you. Like I feel like if I watch Beetlejuice, same movie shot for shot, but it was all digital effects instead of the weird stop motion and the practical effects and stuff, it would be a ter- like it would just not be fun because then it's just like it kind of loses that the kind of haunted house charm that his movie had that his movies mm-hmm. have. I feel like I, I could I could very easily compare his movies to haunted houses in that 
it's like it's like it's fun horror like you're not actually ever scared like when you're watching maybe like i don't know the shining or the exorcist or something like that it's not real dread it's more that like fun halloween horror that where it's like like i'm laughing while i'm scared you know yeah and i feel like that requires this the practical effects that we see in movies like this or in his batman movies to get that charm and it's kind of lost when you pour a bunch of green screen on it i know that i know uh big eyes is like one of his more grounded movies because it's like a drama happens in mm-hmm. like quote-unquote real locations like in houses and things but i i i do kind of lament that i feel like his his later bigger budget movies all kind of bought into the digital thing or maybe it wasn't his choice but i feel like that kind of robs his style of the charm that we see here or even in something like corpse bride you know right yeah and i think that because of his like here uh, and also in like the Batman movies, when he blends models and stop motion, like the griminess of it, it makes the, the all of his worlds feel lived in. Yeah. Like especially, um, like Edward Scissorhands. There's the the house that he lives in is like caving in. It's this castle with the and he lives in the attic and the roof's falling apart. Here, it's the the house is just covered in dust and they live in the attic and it's just so open. Um, and in the Batman films, it's these grimy alleyways with steam like uh, like everywhere and it's just dark and it like it, everything feels authentic to the world itself. Like it feels like people have like very clearly lived in this area and just have soaked it all in and that energy has um is just all over the screen uh, because of that. And then something like Dark Shadows feels so glossy and very it's polished over over. it really just like they try and capture that tone with the like with the coloring and the uh like it just doesn't feel real it doesn't feel uh yeah like you said it's glossy it doesn't it it doesn't have that edge to it which i i really appreciate in some of his earlier movies especially like i don't know if you've seen peewee's big adventure like recently that movie is whack like (laughs) (laughs) now i'm like i'm in the mood like revisit all these movies because i think i maybe saw peewee's big adventure as a kid but i might not have at the same time i just obviously the that character is very recognizable but Mm -hmm. that's definitely one i'd have to go back to um all right, before we before we get into the critical breakdown, I want to ask just about Halloween in general. Uh, what is your relationship to the holiday? What does it mean to you? Halloween is honestly my favorite holiday, mainly because I'm I can be such a geek. Like even growing up as a kid, I loved I just loved costumes growing up. Like I would wear costumes for non-Halloween events. Like I would I yeah. remember I have a, I have a very specific memory of getting my haircut in a Spider-Man costume on like a given weekend. Like, I, like it was nothing. Oh, yeah. I wasn't like going to a birthday party or anything. I just was going to go get my haircut. I wanted to do it in my Spider-Man outfit. I was mad when I had to take the mask off to, to actually yeah. get the haircut. <laughs> um, so I always like, I, I always loved Halloween. One thing that was kind of weird. I'm from, I was born and raised in Guatemala. And one thing that's interesting there is that you don't really like, most people live in, in gated communities, almost irrespective of your socioeconomic class. So it's not like you're walking around this big sprawling neighborhood to go trick-or-treating because it's just not that safe over there like that. It's more like, oh, which which like condominium are you gonna go to yeah. to pick out like the 20 houses there? So it was it was always interesting watching as a kid, like watching Halloween movies or 
a kid's shows where Halloween happens, where the kids are like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go trick-or-treating out in the town. I was like, damn, I don't know what that's like. Yeah. But then also, I also feel like it's a, one thing with that, with this holiday is that it's one that you can enjoy at different stages of your life. I think we talked about this leading up to the podcast where like, as a kid, it's fun because you can get in a costume, go trick-or-treating with your friends and eat a bunch of candy. As a teenager or in college, it's all like the super trashy parties where you just like dress up and it's just like a, a big reason to just like go out and have fun. And then in your 20s, you can keep you you can maybe keep doing that. And then when you're older, if you want to keep having fun, you can be like the fun, like grownups who like go hard on their house for Halloween and like do a bunch of intricate things to do the trick or treating or things like that. So I also feel like it's a it's also like a holiday that doesn't have any of the pressure of other holidays because it's really yes. about how much you want to put into it. Like Christmas, you need to give people gifts and it's like a whole family function. Same with Thanksgiving is all about like how well you get along with your family or whoever you're <laughs> celebrating with. Halloween is like, do you want to have fun? Go ahead. Are you lame and you don't want to wear a costume? Okay, like stay home, be that guy. But it's just like, it's very much a oh, make what you will out of it kind of holiday. Yeah, it it is very much like what you want to put in and what you feel. But I, I, there's no. I think like Thanksgiving and Christmas are very much all kind of preparation based holidays. Like it, there's so much <laughs> leading up to it, and Halloween is kind of all about the energy and the atmosphere that you feel pretty uh, uniformly throughout the month of October. Like you know, you start to see the like Halloween decorations come up, and as soon as that happens, the energy hits you. I mean, sure, you're leading to the actual holiday, but you can like have that fun and uh, make memories around Halloween for like the entire week or even month just leading up to it. There's really no specific set timeline. Uh, it feels so much more free. Uh, yeah, there's no real obligations, and it the yeah the energy kind of hits you at different stages uh, of your life. So obviously. When you're a kid, it's fun about... put. I, I love that you mentioned about putting the costume on. I had a Spider-Man costume. I had a Batman costume that I would never take off. We'd wear it to the grocery store, all that shit. Um, and when you're uh, a teenager, I think it's the. I think it's one of the more... Uh, like the nostalgia hits you really hard, you know? I think that's why people really kind of come back to it. And it there's, I, I become more of a kid around Halloween than I do any other time because... You know, you get that feeling, but it, it makes sense. It's like, oh, I can still wear a costume if I if I want to and go to a party. Yeah. Like it's it's acceptable. And it and it, there's just something about the spooky season. It just it lasts for so long. It's so sustainable. And then once November first hits, it just kind of switches. Um, but for the entire month, it feels completely holistic because obviously the um the the season changes and once that happens and the colors and the leaves change, then it starts to hit you. And it's just, mm -hmm. it just goes and goes and it doesn't stop. And it's so much fun. I love it. So you want to get into the, to the critical breakdown? Let's do it. Let's do it. I think I just want to start quickly with like just a brief overview of the plot. Um, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis play uh, Adam uh, and Barbara, uh, a married couple who, while on vacation, uh, end up drowning because of a car accident and become ghosts in their house. And after their house is sold and bought by a wealthy family from the city, uh, they attempt to 
get the family out of the house and they call on Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice to help them eradicate their house of this um, wealthy family. Uh, and I mean, it's pretty, th- th- that really is pretty much it. Like they get you right into it, right from the start. Like they're on vacation for like, you know, five minutes and then their car goes yeah. over a bridge. Like that's <laughs> like, it, they just throw you in. Oh yeah. I was, um, I was looking at some BTS of the movie and apparently the, the bridge where they had the crash happen, um, the river that it goes over isn't like nearly high enough to like sink the car like they wanted to. So the production literally had to build like a dam type structure to make the water build up so mm-hmm. that the car could like to like to like uh, pump the river up and make the car sink all the way down. And apparently they had to do it like four or five times because like they would do it, get a, get like a take and then like a storm would happen and would literally like just blow over the dam and they'd have to build it over again. Oh my God. But yeah, no, I really like, no, yeah, the movie, as far as like storyline goes, I feel like, I mean, we should probably talk about the positive things first, but to mm-hmm. preview what I didn't love about it, I think the, the story is just like one of the more inessential parts of the movie. It's more yeah. about the, the ride it takes you on. I really appreciate at least for me um I don't know about you but revisiting it like I said I had like a very vague memory of it and obviously like at the as a kid you don't know anything about like actors and like who's in a movie or whatever but first I was like Jeffrey Jones is in this like the the, yeah. the fucking principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off I was like oh mm-hmm. shit and then not gonna lie first five minutes of Winona Ryder's character I was like who's this boy they cast to be like the most emo kid and I was like oh oh wait no it's Winona Ryder. Jesus. Yeah. This is amazing. This is incredible. Yeah. I, I love her in this movie. She's so, so great. She, all of her dialogue is like really, really well delivered. And she really got into like, we all had that stage, you know, like we all yeah. had that point in time in our lives where we were, you know, kind of like, she has the quintessential line in the movie. You know, she says, um, uh, oh, uh, live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself are, str- I myself am strange and unusual. Like <laughs> yeah. that is so, so good. <laughs> and that's at the center of the movie. And because of that, you know, she can have the relationship with Adam and Barbara and she, and you, and you feel for her, like the fact that she doesn't get along with her parents. They clearly don't understand her. They're just uh, all three of them. Like, um, the, her mom and her dad are just completely separate entities. They yeah. like, it doesn't really feel like a family, you know uh, it's, it's so like detached. Um, but once she meets, they, she forms a really good friendship with um, Adam and Barbara and it's, it's really sweet. Like they care for her. They watch out for her. Yeah. And I love how the movie also kind of takes you on this ride where it kind of doesn't explain itself immediately when things are happening, which I really appreciate. Like it's definitely a movie you have to walk in if you've never seen it before, open to being a little confused throughout or like have a, have an eyebrow raise. Like, you know, when they die, they just, well, you first assume that they survive because they're like wet walking back home. And then like you slowly like, Oh, you notice the fireplace is on and they're like, what's going on? The, I, I feel like the movie's not very like, here's everything that's going on like very explicitly at like on the moment when things happen, same with like how they introduce Beetlejuice where it's just like a shot of him reading the newspaper and he's like, Oh, 
I love when he goes like, oh, let, let, let's look at the business section. And it's the obituary <laughs> to see who died. <laughs> yeah, he does. They, Burton does a really good job of doing uh, like visual um, uh, ex, uh, exposition, like with the mirror and using the, the horse and seeing that they don't have a reflection. Candles are like her fingers are on fire. And um, yeah, that whole thing with Beatles or Beatles just in the business section, very funny. <laughs> um, and and yeah, it can. It's a story that relies very heavily on visuals and uh, like visual gags and visual um, uh, explanations of things. Just it's a very visually appealing movie. Like everything, like not only does everything feel lived in, everything feels feels very thought out, very created, and very. There was a lot of time and energy put into this, especially when they get to um, the uh, to Juno's office and they're just waiting in the lobby and seeing everyone, how everyone <laughs> died. The one guy's got a chicken in his neck. The one woman is cut yeah. in half and she's sitting next to her legs. Yeah, the other yeah. guy's burned to a crisp. But like everything feels so well realized and uh, obviously like just filled with creative energy. Like they probably, like I feel like this is just one of those things where they had a blast making it. Like not only just filming, just coming up with ideas of, okay, what kind of ghosts can we have? Like they got the guy who's like all flat and like, yeah, I was going to say, around. that's my favorite guy because back to my point about that, this movie would suck if it was with CGI. Cause if that movie was made now, I would say, Oh shit, that's a guy that got squeezed by a car. How did they do it? They did it with CGI right now. I still don't know how you achieve like a practical effect of like how you actually make like a flattened person and then have him like uh, be like carted around by the little cable. And but yet, yet he still has like a mouth and he can talk like that practical effect feels way more. Obviously it's like cartoonish. Cause like he's like squeezed by the car and you see like the tire tracks on him, but it almost feels so much more real. Cause I, I literally don't know how you make, how you do that. If it was computers, I just know, Oh, well they just, I mean, Obviously saying they use CGI is not like an explanation, but you can kind of like explain it away in your brain and it kind of feels faker. And here, even though obviously all of it is like, has like a kind of a B movie vibe to it. I feel like it sells it way more than if it was like uh, modern. They had so much confidence making it. I feel you, you can tell that they knew exactly what they were doing when they were planning it out. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to say, just kind of going back to the... Um, to the actors, I, I think oh, what's sure. interesting because you have okay, so you have Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Jeffrey Jones, Catherine O'Hara, um, and uh, the, the the I made a note in here that says pretty much everybody except for maybe Baldwin and Davis is overacting, but doing a really good job at it, like everyone kind of needs to be at another level, like especially like pr- particularly O'Hara. And Michael Keaton for obvious reasons, but they're all really giving a lot, and it works really well. Like, I mean, Catherine O'Hara literally has a scene when she's just yelling at Jeffrey Jones, where she's like, "I will go insane, and I will take you with me." It's like, oh my god, <laughs> but it's so funny. <laughs> I love Catherine O'Hara in this; she's so great. She's awesome. She's she's always because she's all she's one of those actors that like I feel like the bulk of her career was when we, like we weren't alive. So it's always fun to discover like what movies she's in now that I like actually know about actors and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I think especially with Winona Ryder, how much um, Tim Burton gets everyone to buy into giving these performances and to like 
be game with all like the outrageous shit that's happening in this movie. Cause I feel like you could definitely, you could definitely like, if you falter with one of your cast members, you could, you could definitely tell if one of them wasn't like fully buying in on like the Beetlejuice experience, if that makes any sense. But everyone's like in it like 200%, mm-hmm. which I love so much. Um, also, I wanted to say back to, you said the line I, of the I, movie, I have a yeah. counter, for, I have a counter for you for line of the movie. I only caught it on my second viewing because okay. I feel like it's it's very much no, no I'm, I mean obviously I'm just playing but um what is it uh when they're like you know when after they redesigned the house and they're they're like chilling in the back porch but the the wall is still like a house wall it's like this really crazy mm-hmm. modern design when they're like it's just um Catherine O'Hare and Jeffrey Jones like debating about what they should do and then Otho comes in and he goes. I know just as much about the supernatural as I do interior design. <laughs> and I feel like that, that, that's also like a, like a great line in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Otho's an interesting character because like, as I was watching it, I, it almost seemed like he was also living in the house. He was just always there. And I was just kind of thinking like he could, <laughs> like what if he was just a complete hack? Like he knew what he was doing, but had nowhere else to go. So he just like stayed in the house the whole time. Yeah. No, but with Otho, that whole character, also rest in peace to the the actor who played him. I know he passed away in 2010, I believe. But um, oh, yeah. I was going to say, that that character also in the movies kind of feeds into this whole vibe where, like, the story doesn't really need to make sense. Like, do they ever really tell us who this guy is? Like, we just kind of assume, oh, it's, like, Catherine O'Hara's artsy friend that sticks around the whole time. Mm-hmm. And steals the the book for the recently deceased which is also like a great a manual for the recently deceased which is also a great a great gag throughout the movie yeah like he's just kind of there and he's always dressed like he works at hot topic or something (laughs) and it's amazing i absolutely love in the in the final scene when they unleash beetlejuice again and he just like like points at him with a with a with a spotlight and changes his outfit to like a baby blue. Yeah. He just goes. He just he just like cries out and like ru- runs away. Like, <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of funny because he's bringing like a definite uh, a different energy to it. Where he's just like you know, I mean, there's absolutely no organic flow through in this room. <laughs> like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? It's so good. And like that's the other thing. You know, when they first move in. Like, how many other movies can you think of that have kind of an interesting uh, interior design planning scene? Like, they're just going from room to room, spray painting walls and thinking about what other stuff to bring in. And it's so, so crazy. There's like no other movie that does that. And you wouldn't necessarily think that this movie needed that. But to kind of just have Catherine O'Hara walking around with Otho and... um, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin trying to think of various ways to scare them as ghosts, which we find <laughs> out that they can't, uh, they can't see them. Uh, I, w- I wanted to talk also about the family really quick um, because I think so. Jeffrey Jones, Catherine O'Hara, and Win- Winona Ryder. I-, I think it's funny that like the whole reason that they moved up here, Jeffrey Jones is he has to, he wants to relax. I feel like that was a big <laughs> plot point in movies in the eighties where like they do it and Funny Farm does it where it's like the main character is like, oh, I really just gotta relax. Hmm. How about we move? Like, <laughs> like yeah, the most. <laughs> 
the most stressful thing that you can do <laughs> is move. And that's how you want to relax. And that's his whole thing in the movie is he's just like, how am I supposed to get anything done if you guys won't let me relax? Like, that's just the thing. Like, that's just... <laughs> His fucking thing. It's like, dude, you can go on vacation. You didn't have to uplift your family to fucking rural Connecticut. Like, yeah, no, it's it's insane. I feel like the movie just kind of has all these like retro family plot dynamics, and they're just there so that the movie can happen. Like, do we really know? Do we really ever know why her parents don't get uh, Winona Ryder's character? You know, they're just parents, so they don't get her and. The husband's a, a stressed businessman, so obviously he wouldn't he doesn't get along with his wife who's like super artsy and like a New York socialite. Like it, I feel like the like the movie kinda has this and I feel like a lot of uh, Tim Burns movies have this like inherent sense of like, you know these Americana tropes, so we're not gonna flesh them out too much. You know, we're just mm-hmm. gonna have everyone's dressed in the most extravagant way their character can dress. And they're going to do things in the most pronounced way possible, according to their character. You know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like they even, lean into this. They lean into the stereotypes quite a bit, especially with Catherine O'Hara as being this. You know, she's an artist. She's just, um, she does sculptures, and she wears these. She's essentially playing a, uh, a a slightly different version than her character on Shit's Creek, which has kind of given her a certain kind of career resurgence in the past um, few years or so, uh, and the. Just making sure that her art is protected. Like she has a great, she has a really great line uh, when they're putting everything in. She says, "This is my art, and it's dangerous. Do you think I want to die like this?" Because her sculpture like traps her on the side of the house. <laughs> um, it's it's so good, and that's kind of so. That was the other thing. Like as I was watching it, I thought it was really funny. I mean, you bring up the fact that um, it's a ghost story that's been flipped. The ghosts are actually haunted by the living. And, uh, but I also think it's funny that like this movie has some kind of funny, but strange anti-gentrification themes, like kind of un- <laughs> like underneath it is kind of funny. If you think about it that way, I mean, it's kind of interpreted otherwise, but I just think it's funny where it's like when they walk into the house, like in the afterlife, when they be gone for three months and everything has changed, like they got the checkerboard floor and the fireplace and all the tables have been brought in mm-hmm. and they're just like, this is our house. It's hideous, like, <laughs> like just the fact that this that these artsy fartsy avant garde artists are coming in here and just uprooting everything to be more modern. I mean, the, I think yeah. the house looks fucking great. I'm not gonna lie, but like, um, and the, the, the modern version or the or the the normal version of the house. I dig the modern version. I kind of like it. <laughs> I it's so cracked, bro. I'm like, how did like. Tim Burton and Bo Welch, the production designer, who I wanted to make sure I gave a shout out to because he fucking kills it in this movie. He does, um, yeah. Again, it's like that house is, to me, again, more proof that it's like Tim Burton said, wow, this movie's going to let me do a lot of weird artsy shit that I like to do. So let's make the movie. Like, what is that house? It has like it has like the the frame of it. And then like the porch like extends out the same frame. Mm-hmm. And the like the texture on the walls is like this weird gray granite thing that they adapted to, like all along the stairs and the walls. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it, it, it looks like a, it looks like such like an eighties quiche art piece that I just know again, like, like you said, they had so much fun making it and they just knew they could do like, again, let's just go full, like, like artsy New York wealthy times 200. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I mean, the house itself is huge. It's almost like it's a it's almost like the psycho house mixed with like a church. Like yeah. it's so it's got that stand like that kind of architecture outside, but it's so huge. It's so tall. And like when they're like even in the beginning, when they're just running around, um, and the Joan, the realtor, comes by and they're just like running around in each room. I'm just like, this is so big. Like this is such a big space for them. And obviously that becomes like the point that Joan makes, but it's like, again, like imagine like there's just so many, like that was, that's like a treasure trove for a kid. There's so many places to run around and find and explore. Like that's, that's great. Like I know, I actually know someone here where I, where I live who has a house very similar to that. That is not like necessarily in size, but it's so open and there's a lot of rooms that you can explore. And like, I mean, the house itself has like four or like three floors, you know, the attic is so big, the each, like the second room and the, and the main floor is just so widespread and it's fun. Like it, again, it adds to the haunted house vibe that you're talking about. Yeah. I do think this movie has something, a lot of old movies and even some newer ones do as well, where like, it's like the house from the outside looks like a normal house and then they shoot in the inside and it's like, oh, you're definitely in a sound stage because all of this is fucking massive. Like it would never fit in the house. Yeah. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, like the, like the normal suburban house in movies is like the living room is like fucking massive. They have a whole room, like a dining room separate. And it's just like, oh yeah, you needed space to, 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 to shoot it. So it's in a studio, but like no one's house really, like, at least no normal person's house is like really that massive, but I get what you mean that it's like it has that '80s like the house is like ne- has never-ending rooms and it has an attic and a basement and two rooms upstairs and everything is like it's all like seeping out of itself with the suburbia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so after they try to rid. Uh, the house of the, I don't actually remember what they're, oh, the Deets, that's their name. The Maitlands are um, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. The Deets are the uh, are the family that moves in. So they try and uh, rid them uh, by being uh, ghosts and that doesn't work. And uh, once uh, they finally call Beetlejuice three times, so I think that means it's time to have the Michael Keaton conversation uh, because <laughs> Michael Keaton is oh, yeah. out of this world in this movie. He is insane. Like, and as I was watching it, I thought it was interesting because I mean, I remember all the lines as a kid. I remember all the mannerisms, all the voices that he does. I thought it was interesting that this, most, this was baby. his Robin Williams performance. Yeah. This like this is a performance that he's giving like with a character that Robin Williams would do. He's doing a lot of physical comedy. He's doing a lot of impressions. He's changing his voice a lot. He's got a lot of like things timed out. Like this is his Robin Williams performance and he fucking sells it. He just knocks it out of the park. Every line he says is just so fun and oh. just but he's also a, such a sleaze bag. Like he's so gross and he's Bro, he's like, so gross. The villain of the so movie like- too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because it's it's one of those movies, right, where like the titular character is only in it for fifteen minutes. Is also like a mm-hmm. a fact I looked up. Like he's literally in like not even a quarter of the movie, yet he's like so electrifying throughout. And oh yeah, this is like one hundred percent one of the most like unhinged performances I've ever seen someone give. 
And I would definitely, I definitely agree with the, with the Robin Williams comparison. I would almost wonder, cause this came out before Aladdin, like a, definitely like a few years before Aladdin. I think Aladdin mm-hmm. came out in 98. So 10 years later that like, obviously not that like this would be the source for Robin Williams style, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if someone involved with Aladdin saw Beetlejuice in like the, right. Like the chaotic, like different impressions all the time. Like he's doing this and that because it's funny, right? Like, in retrospect, you're like, oh yeah, this is kind of like a Robin Williams genie performance, but this came out 10 years before Aladdin. So I'd almost wonder, not obviously that like Michael Keaton is like super influential on Robin Williams, but it's interesting to see if maybe this may, may have had an influence on that performance. Maybe, I'm not sure. I mean, Robin Williams was doing all of that stuff, like impressions and crazy references, like all throughout his career in the 70s. Like, I think it's interesting that Michael Keaton himself was a stand-up comedian and was very different in stand-up. Like he he also had a lot of energy, but was very straightforward with his jokes, was very um <clears throat> excuse me. Uh was very uh just set up punchline kind of thing. Robin Williams was kind of all over the place. And I great that Michael Keaton became, you know, the actor that we know and love and had that resurgence with uh with Birdman. But this is very different for him. And yeah. I wouldn't like because he's really good at you know, and also in Batman, he um, is really good at kind of hiding who he is, and he has a lot of layers to him. Like each character, he can bring out something new, uh, and this is just he's throwing throwing it all out there, and he's doing some crazy voices, and like you know, like you said, every like I, one of my favorite parts of this whole movie is when he when they first meet him. That whole section is so great when he first goes. Um, when he first comes out of the coffin and they're like, all right, what are you, what are your qualifications? And he's like, well, I attended Juilliard. And like, uh, uh, I attended Juilliard, Harvard Business School and I had a few years. <laughs> no, he's, it's also, sorry, go ahead. Uh, they're just saying like that whole scene is like, he's just doing so much. And then he, uh, swaps into Adam's clothing and he's like, we would shop the same store. Hey, Armano, you know? <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's Armano, just all over friend. them. <laughs> it's all, yeah, it's really interesting because this is such a, right, it's such a highlighter point in his filmography because one, I feel like it's one of the bigger movies he did to start out his career. I'm looking over his IMDb right now and I see a lot of TV movie and like uh, television work. Leading up to this, he made a few movies before Beetlejuice, but it's like, I'm just wondering, like, I would love to see what the audition was like. Because it's not like he was known for giving these kinds of performances before this Mm -hmm. movie. And it's not like he went Johnny Depp and kept giving these kinds of performances going forward. Like, I'm surprised that Tim Burton was like, oh, yeah, like I cast you in Beetlejuice. I'm making this movie called Batman. You're the guy for the role. Like, you'd almost think he would cast Alec Baldwin out of this movie. Mm-hmm. for for B, for Batman and again like right like most of most of like Keaton's career Batman post Batman and Birdman like he's playing a, oh, like a human you know like he plays a person like yeah. <laughs> in his movies and then like here he's just right he's just like this demon bio exorcist perv like <laughs> yeah and we just never saw something like this from him again which is yeah. I think also interesting yeah, for sure. I mean, he I, it's it's true that like most of his roles are are real people. Like they're um just because he has this kind of look about him that he um kind of shares with a lot of other actors during this time of just being 
kind of the the everyman with a little bit of crazy yeah. in him. Like he just he has that little bit of crazy in him that he can let out. I mean, obviously he has a lot of crazy like in here, but like there's that great scene in Batman when he is talking to Joker, and then he's like, well, <laughs> "You want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts!" Like he lets the crazy <laughs> out at like just opportune times. And then obviously uh, in Birdman he does he's battling with the crazy um, and yeah. is reflective of his whole career. But he really is just kind of seems like this guy who kind of gets beaten down a little bit, but is able to push through and, and pick himself back up. He's such a, uh, a really likable actor and just a really likable guy. He's great in interviews. He's really nice and very level headed. Yeah. He's a, he's um, a charming guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird that he's Beetlejuice because Beetlejuice is such a piece of shit. Like, he, yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to talk about. I wanted to get into this now is that like when, because, you know, when I, when you're a kid and you watch this movie or really when you watch like a lot of movies like this, you know, the character is so eccentric and he's very funny. Like he's got a lot of great quotes. He's doing a lot of voices. And as a kid, you're like, oh, okay, cool. You know, that's kind of like candy for a kid. He's got like the white face and the green hair and the crazy um uh, and then he turns into a snake and you're like, oh shit, like that's crazy. You know, we've yeah. come for your daughter, Chuck. Like, that's great. Um, <laughs> but, but then I was watching and I was like, well, oh, they're just depicting like he's, he is a sleaze bag and he's a huge creep. Like he's, he's really a huge broke. creep. Like <laughs> he says like, for some reason also when I was a kid, I like didn't fully put together like Winona Ryder didn't seem like a teenager to me in this movie. She seemed a little bit older, yeah. but he's definitely like 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Like, the whole marriage thing in this movie is so, yeah. it was so crazy. <laughs> like, and I think it's good that they, they make it very clear that he's the villain of the movie and you don't want that to happen. And you, yeah. um, and you're obviously against it for, you know, multiple reasons, but when I was watching, I was just like, wow, like that was so of that time, so of the eighties that they could get away yeah. with that. Yeah, but I mean, it's also interesting because at first, like when he first comes in and he's like creeping on on Gina Davis when they first meet him when they go down yeah. to the miniature, which which by the way, the miniature set is like one of my favorite ideas in this whole movie. Yes, how like the grass is like that bumpy plastic, and then when oh, they're digging yes. when they're digging him out, they're digging like the corkscrew and the plastic out, mm-hmm. like. like I I like that's just so creative, and I feel like you don't see that in movies anymore like that. Yeah, and I, I was love really it. appreciative of it. But back to back to my point, like at first I was kind of concerned because right, he's kind of like trying to make out with her and like like groping her and shit. And I was like, yeah. is this movie gonna be one of those movies where the the pervy character is like kind of like he's a douche but he's likable, you know, like mm-hmm. we're supposed to like sympathize with like the kind of asshole character. But I did find interesting that the movie throughout never poses him as like charismatic or relatable. Like they even like, like she calls him like, Oh, like this pervert's trying to like work with us. Like this guy's a fucking weirdo when he's like, when he's trying to marry Winona Ryder. Right. It's like, you're like, Oh no, like this is so strange. It's never like, ha ha ha. It's part of the joke. You know, even though it's yeah. definitely of the time, I did think I was expecting the movie to turn me <laughs> off in that, ex- in that respect way more than it did overall in the, like, at the end of the day, but it's, it, that's definitely like a piece of its time where he's just like a straight up, he's a straight up creep. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's interesting that it kind of, it fits the movie in a way because they set up that you're not supposed to trust him because Juno says, don't 
you don't want his help. Like, don't go to him. Like, be very, very careful. Um, and so the audience, as the audience, we should be like, oh no. And when you first meet him, uh, because of you know what Keaton is doing and what he's giving, you're you're almost a little intoxicated by it. You're like, oh okay, this is a new level of energy that this movie hasn't had for you know thirty minutes yeah. or so. And but then you know he's lifting up her skirt and he's kissing her and he's. Um, like just everything, and you're like, oh yeah, no, let's get out of here. And then you know he he reveals himself as being the villain. And I have to say about the model scene, his whole like last fifteen seconds or something is really great because he's doing like a couple different impressions. He's got a couple great lines. Like right after they leave and they go home, and he turns around, and he's like, hope you like Italian, <laughs> and he's like, oh where'd you go? Where'd you go? <laughs> like, and he's like, oh, I'm just trying to cut a deal. What do you want me to do? And oh, yeah. the part that I remember the most as a kid is when he goes up to the tree and he's like, you're working with a professional here. And then he kicks it over and he's like, nice fucking model. (laughs) (laughs) Ingrained in my head as a kid. I thought that was so funny. Um, I love it. But because of that, again, the movie is like, yeah, good call. They're not gonna, especially after the snake scene when they, um, when he almost literally kills everybody and (laughs) they're just like, no, let's not, like we can't, we can't trust this guy. And yeah, you're right. They you, The movie never asks you to sympathize with him. Like yeah. they definitely set him up to be like, this guy sucks. <laughs> yeah. But I do think the word you used is very correct in like that he's like intoxicating because he has that, like he has like the, the sleaze bag charm that you can see someone getting tricked by, but the mm-hmm. movie's never tricked by, which I think is a very smart move. Yeah. Um, also, I love his line. In terms of great Beetlejuice lines, when when Winona Ryder's like, "Are you a ghost?" and he's like, "I'm the ghost with the most, baby." <laughs> yeah, he has another Amazing. great one in that scene when he's like, um, when he's trying to convince her to let her out. Um, he's like, uh, "Come on, it's a win-win, you know. I get out. You could say you're hitching one of the most eligible bachelors in Valentino." <laughs> it's so good. I love it. It's a, it's a marriage of inconvenience. Yeah. I love too. Also, the scene when he, like, after the snake scene, then he crashes the truck, uh, and he's yelling at them from the model, and he picks, and she, he gets picked up, and the rubber spikes come out of him. Spikes out. Like, yeah, he's like, "Go ahead, make my millennium." Like, great. Classic, just you turned. I love when they turned a classic movie line that was like already established from Dirty Harry and made it like new to their own just by one word. And he's just, he's just making his own version of it. And then he goes dancing to a whorehouse, which was just like, oh my God. Like, what? (laughs) It's crazy. I watched the movie. I was like, I literally, I had, I watched them three days apart. And when the whorehouse scene comes in again, and I'm like, wait, what part of the movie is this again? And then like, (laughs) I remember that Juno like sent it to him. Also the fact mm-hmm. that so ghosts can like send whorehouses at each other or like illusions. I don't know. Again, the movie has rules. It doesn't really care about them. It's all just like fast and loose, which I really like. But also one thing we need to talk about, not that, not that there's ever too little to talk about with Michael Keane's performance is the dinner possession scene. Oh, Yes talk that that scene is like hypnotic almost it's so unnerving and yet you're kind of like vibing with it when they're all kind of like realizing that they're being possessed and they're like singing against their will 
and they slowly start like the way all the actors give this performance of like trying not to dance but doing the choreography i think mm-hmm. is like one of the most impressive moments in the whole movie and then the fucking shrimp hands just like are yeah. the stuff of my nightmares <laughs> and it's not even michael keaton that does that that's all gina davis and alec baldwin's idea yeah. like they and i mean that's the most iconic scene in the movie because of how everyone is selling it like not a single actor is like not into it like the fact yeah their their napkins go up as as they start and Gina Davis or um and Catherine O'Hara starts by going "Dayo," and you're like oh boy like what's yeah, what's going to happen here and, and then, then also picks up the picks up the ice cube and starts yes. doing the drums <laughs> yes that was always my favorite like he would seem like the most into it um then they start going around the table and like yeah oh, it was it was so just such a so bizarre great. scene just like looking at it multiple times because it's like so it's this weird hyper hyper 80s modern home and everyone's dressed in their most like caricature form and it's this ghost movie and then they're singing this like tropical banana boat song Mm -hmm. it's like again it's so unique and it's so bizarre it's such like a bizarre combination of things like I want to know how Danny Elfman and Tim Burton came about this song and said, and like, again, the whole, I'm, I'm, I'd be so inter- interested in the whole inception of that scene because it's so odd. It's like, you would never put those pieces together anywhere mm-hmm. else but this movie. Also, speaking of which, in researching the movie, I found that there is a Beetlejuice the documentary movie that hasn't, it's a fan doc and it's, it's still in post-production, but I just wanted to give it a shout out because it'll hopefully come out at some point in the future. And they talk a lot about the physical production of that, of this movie. And I'd, I, I'd be really interested to watch it whenever it's ready. I would be as well. I think that that scene, the, uh, yeah, the banana boat scene and the scene at the end when Winona Ryder is dancing to uh, jump in the line is the entire reason why they're, became a Beetlejuice musical on Broadway. Like that's why <laughs> that is why that that exists. There's no other reason that that came about besides the fact that they could turn that both of those scenes into um, stage musical numbers and then they'll fill in the pieces otherwise. Like um, bro, I did not know there was a musical. I'm sorry. I need to watch that. I feel like this movie is <laughs> Like, now that you said it, this movie is perfect for a musical. I want the Beetlejuice musical sequences. I hope mm-hmm. they rock. I want to see them <laughs> so bad now that you say it. But sorry, continue. No, no, cool. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's so iconic and so fun, and you can't help but, like, kind of tap your foot to it. And the songs became, uh, I mean, they were already known, but they became more iconic and are now a staple of Halloween because because of this movie. Um, and before I, I wanted to, I have some negative thoughts, but before we do, I wanted to talk about how the vibe of Halloween is captured because obviously we talked a lot about the Gothic architecture of Burton's movies and the set pieces. Um, but also the, the fact that it seems like everyone is wearing a costume already yeah. in the movie is so, um, so well realized like the, uh, like obviously, um, what's her name? Delia. Is that her name? Um, Winona Ryder's character is in the whole black dress garb the whole time. Uh, She has several veils throughout the movie. I fucking love it. How much black outfits does she have? I want to know. 
It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, she's got a lot. Um, and the uh, the whole like Catherine O'Hara's outfits go from like so many different angles is great. The whole uh, thing when Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis contort their faces is so reminiscent of like a Halloween mask and yeah. the and the level of detail in that is great. Yeah. Oh, um, and speaking of Alec Baldwin, I even think his outfit throughout the movie is very enigmatic of this and that it's just like a very picture perfect suburban house outfit like his flannel is tucked into his into his khakis and it's buttoned up just so you can see the red shirt and it's specifically a black and white flannel and a red shirt to give it more of like that spooky vibe to it because i feel mm-hmm. like a regular dad wouldn't put those together because it's kind of like it's kind of like almost like punk or rock and rollish i feel like put that stronger red with the the black and white flannel but in this movie he's wearing it because he's a he's a suburban husband in a Tim Burton movie. So of course he's wearing it here, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, absolutely. And in general, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it's captured in everything, especially just like some of the most awesome, like gonzo set design I've ever seen in a movie is in this, like the fact, like the, the whole sequence in like the offices to process death, I feel like it's sheer, like hot, like sheer, not Hollywood, Halloween, like vibe, you know? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite gags in the movie is that I can't remember who says that uh, a public uh, people who kill themselves go on to become public servants in the afterlife. Yeah. And then I don't know if you noticed, but the gig is carried through with like the, the girl at the reception uh, cut her wrists. And then they have the gig, the gag with Juno where like she I think she like slit her own throat. And then when she smokes, the smoke comes out of the gape in yeah. her neck. Yes. <laughs> I oh, love it. So all the, this movie has all the gags, man. It's insane. Absolutely. And just the the fact that like the lighting, like with achieving certain colors through the dark tones, like the blues and the dark reds from the model home. And like there's a creature element to it. And obviously the whole snake sequence and there's possession and there's ghosts. And it kind of is like this weird, you know, forgive the pun, but like, which is cauldron, like melting pot kind of thing of all mm-hmm. the known elements of Halloween mixed in, um, mixed into one. Um, and it's, there's not a lot of other Halloween movies that, um, that do that. And it's also, it's very positive. It's very, um, like it has a good ending. Uh, it, you know, talks about the importance of, you know, just being together and, you know, living with one another. Uh, but it's it, it like it just it captures all of that at once. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like yeah, because I, I feel like it manages to be really morbid without being actually depressing. You know, I think that's like again, like like we've said throughout the pod. Like I feel like Burden has manages to capture that tone really, really well. Where it's like yeah, I mean, he's just done it throughout throughout all his movies where it has like the super spooky gothic really dark aesthetic, but a very wholesome story at the core of it. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's also why it achieves the, ho- the the Halloween vibe so much. Also, I love in, the, in a movie that I feel like it's very self-aware about the fact that it's a ghost movie. I love that they still have the gag with the, with the eye holes over the sheets when they're trying to scare them mm-hmm. with the classic ghost look. Cause I just, I love that callback to like then actually doing like ghost, like, like the super classic lazy ghost costume. I thought, mm-hmm. I thought that scene was so fun. And then the, 
the Polaroid she takes and then she sees that they don't have legs under them. I, I thought that whole sequence was pretty clever. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so can, I wanted to get into uh, my issues with it because I think that you said something earlier that uh, really rings true is that the story and the plotting kind of almost becomes secondary to just the characters and the kind of overall atmosphere of the movie. And I think that's true. I think that the through line and the plotting is like, it's fairly easy to follow it. Um, but there's some things that I, you said that the movie breaks its own rules and it definitely does. The, the biggest thing that jumped out to me is the whole, like Otho getting a hold of the handbook and uh, performing the seance and bringing them, you know, back from the dead is like, that whole scene was like, it, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's well done with the makeup and the bringing Beetlejuice back. But like, my question was like, that whole seance, is that just in the book? Like, that's just, that's just a whole chapter. If found yeah. by living, you can bring, like, it's, it's so strange. <laughs> and yeah. like, how does he get a hold of it? I felt like that like, only dead people can see that book, but he's able to, um, I guess because he's attached to the supernatural, maybe, I, I don't know, but like, but like the whole thing, it's just kind of a, you kind of have to accept it to get to the next thing. Cause Beetlejuice is coming and you'll forget all about it after that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that that whole like subplot and then sequence with the author seance, I think kind of signals a whole thing about the whole movie where again, it's really, I feel like a movie whose, whose strengths and biggest points of enjoyment are more in the, experiences it takes you through in each scene and the different ways it like creeps you out or kind of like zigs when you think it's going to zag in different points in the movie more than like a particularly like enthralling storyline maybe one way i would compare it is like you know how there's like say like an action movie like die hard that has like a really good plot uh you like care about the character and it's a very tight script who that also has action meanwhile you have something like The Raid, which is much more like we're going to set up a story that can allow for a lot of ass kicking, you know? <laughs> this, yeah. Like this this script feels like it's designed for like how many different spooky sets and sequences can we string along in this idea of like ghosts being haunted by humans more than like let's tell a real, I guess, I guess emotionally impacting story. Like throughout the movie I'm entertained and I'm invested, but it's not like I really care that much about the characters, but I don't, you know, but I don't think I'm supposed to, I guess is my point. I feel like the movie has goals beyond a narrative ambitions, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole emotional core of it is the relationship between the Maitlands and, um, the uh what the fuck is Winona Ryder's name? What is her <laughs> character's name? I'm going on the IMDb right now. I want to say it's Delia, wrong. but I could be wrong. Delia? It is Delia. Delia. No, Delia is Catherine O'Hara. Lydia, that's her name. Lydia, Lydia. Deeds. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that's the whole real heart of the movie. Lydia's relationship with Adam and Barbara. Like, because at the end, they're like, we, you know, we want your family to stay. Like, that's sweet. Um, but also, I didn't realize until this rewatch that Lydia tried to kill herself. Like, yeah, she does a suicide <laughs> note. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, it was, it was, and also that whole arc is, like, that part of her arc is so strange because she, 
So at the snake part, she looks at Adam and Barb and she's like, why are you doing this? Just go, leave me alone. And she's obviously mad at them and runs into her room. And then she starts writing the suicide note. And then later on, when she meets back up with Adam and Barbara, she's like, I want to be dead because I want to be with you guys. It's like, you were just mad at them. Like what, like what, what changed? Like I, it's so strange, but it was like out of left field for me. It's like, Oh my God, she is going to commit suicide. Like I was not, I was not expecting that, nor did I remember that that had happened. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, I feel like, yeah, the whole movie is much more about, the vibes that that brings more than that sounds that sounds very light when talking about suicide but like it's more of like an aesthetic piece than like let's say any like like i don't think the movie tries or is supposed to have any kind of nuanced take on like teenage depression you know it's like we don't even really know why she is as like extremely emo as she is like she just pulls up in the all black is in the all black the whole time and she fucks with the ghost because she's hella spooky, you know? It's like... Yeah. And I mean, the whole movie itself takes... Uh, puts a lighter uh, tone on death in, in and of itself. Yeah. The whole the whole nation of, the notion of the afterlife and being dead and passing on and your lost souls and all that shit is very, very light. It's not... Uh, it's not too heavily burdened or yeah. made like to be... A grieving process or anything like that. Yeah, it's um, but that like she's she's writing that letter and she's like, I want to die, and then she's like, Nah, draft two. All right, let's go. <laughs> I just think it's funny, uh, but I think that it kind of is consistent with the movie about how she's writing the her suicide note, and but she's like like um, erasing sentences throughout to kind of make it sound more dramatic, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, <laughs> I forget what she rewrites specifically, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, the one thing I wrote, I think the movie does it kind of, like it kind of like makes death be like as boring as anything else in life. Like it makes it bureaucratic with like the waiting room and like, oh, you need an appointment to see like your death processing agent. You know, it's like yeah, of course, of course yeah. Even when I die, is it resting? No, it's like uh, get in line. Like there's a bunch of people waiting ahead of you to to get this process going. You know, it's like well, they it takes the whole such thing a bl- they- it's very blasé about it. Yeah, well, the whole thing is they have to wait 125 years or something like that to be stuck in that house. Like, that's the whole thing. And th- th- that I was a little unsure about, like, why why that number specifically? But, like, it's kind of funny when, yeah, you put it into the blasé lens of the procedural of it all. Like, they have to wait yeah. so long because, like, hey, they got a lot of clients coming in. A lot of people die every single yeah. day. So Although, they gotta I mean, f- hey. It's it's less waiting than it would take to to legally immigrate to the U.S. You know, so I don't know if it's that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they got it made in that sense. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> that was good. That was good. Um, but uh, but yeah, and also the other thing is this, this whole like they have two dinner party scenes and <laughs> the. The whole point of it is like they want to capitalize off the ghosts, right? So first, it's um, you know, uh, Delia's uh, agent comes and looks at her work, and then they get possessed. And then after they leave, another family, like the whole people from New York, come to be like, "We could turn this into the uh, Paranormal Research Center of Connecticut," and yeah. they can like <laughs> capital. Like that's such like that is such a cliche that like is is fun. Not like I, I hate saying like something's just like cliche, but like that was something 
that it's like that's the obvious choice to go to. It's like, okay, these people are going to be greedy and they want to capitalize off of it and that's going to be the big thing. But then that doesn't really go anywhere. Like, it's just a conversation that they have and then Beetlejuice comes in and is like, attention, Kmart shoppers! And then just like bows down and well, like they just they, go flying they, they through the ceiling. Their, they bring in their rich friends to maybe invest and the whole thing is that they're trying to get a Lydia to bring out the ghosts to show them, but the ghosts don't want to come out, right? Yeah, uh-huh. But I think it does kind of fill into your your point about how like there's like some very mild like gentrification vibes going on and that like, oh, as soon as they find a ghost, like, oh, let's capitalize. Like I can see there's a museum here, the gift shops over here. Like it's really funny. I think now I think it would be a great time to just uh, transition into the analyze or the analysis section. So are you ready for that? For sure. covering it in that I feel like there's n- it's not a movie that's trying to be that deep anyways you know mm-hmm. what do you think yeah I think that well I mean the, the whole thing is that um, you know they're trying to s- scare off this family and they don't and the, the the whole thing is they're totally separate like they're so um, couldn't be more different the two families the Deets and the Maitlands like the Deets are obviously they're from the city. They um, are very wealthy. They have um, they're this kind of eccentric artist type family, or at least um, uh, Delia is, and Lydia is this very goth and um, emo kind of kid. And then uh, the the Maitlands are this all American family and wanting to start uh, you know have have kids, and they're not able to do that, and that's their. Um, and that's basically, you know, what their characters are. But, you know, by the end of it, they accept the um, uh, they they accept the deets for um, for who they are. And they were like, we can, you know, we can live together uh, in harmony. You know, that that's kind of the thing. One of the big takeaways, I think, is that 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 these two different um, families can uh live in harmony together and and work together. So you hear that parasite? It can work, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But no. <laughs> I don't I mean I don't even know how much I'd agree with that just because I feel like all the characters are so like and again I don't think it's like a fault of the movie, but all the characters are pretty like hollow beyond mm-hmm. a certain point. Like like Gina Davis and um God, I now completely blanked on his name. We've been talking Alec about Baldwin. Alec Baldwin's characters. They're really just like an American fan, an American couple in love, you know, and they just, yeah. they just get along in their suburban house. And then uh, Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara, just like the dysfunctional city family that uh, they don't get each other. You know, it's like, like how much, there's not much more to say about these people beyond like their costumes, yeah. you know? Which I think kind of again adds to like the fun house kind of haunted house vibe the movie has throughout. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's what that's I think that's what they're trying to go for is that like okay, uh, that they'll be able to live together and it'll be fine. Um, but the only other like thing that they give Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis's characters like any in terms of depth is when uh, when Joan, their friend, comes over um, and she's like, "This is a." big house would be perfect for a family and then Gina Davis is like oh and she's like I didn't mean anything by it so it's like okay they obviously want to start a bigger family but 
they don't they don't really go into it beyond that. And then by the end, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, Lydia is like, kind they, of their daughter, and like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, but like that's their that's the whole arc. It's like, oh, Lydia is actually their daughter, and she's and they're her, um, they're closer to her parents than her actual parents, and uh, and that's that's pretty much it. You know, it's it's pretty superficial at that in that, but it tries to be positive with just, um, and also to accept oh, sure. the. Just to try to uh, yeah accept the strange and the um, uh, the eccentric experiences and personalities, just uh, to kind of em- embrace them. And there are many movies that have done it better. We could, like we've been saying, this movie isn't really all hung up on saying anything. It kind of just shoehorns it in at the end. But like, I mean, it just it try it's it's positive, you know. If and it, yeah. because the message itself is so uh, so bright in a darker movie um it you you can at least uh it comes through at least a little bit yeah for sure and i do think also and back to like how the movie doesn't really isn't really interesting in making a whole lot of like logical sense one thing that i'm surprised didn't stick out to me the first time i rewatched it but on my second watch that i mean the way they defeat beetlejuice is just the most like it's just very contrived like he sends Gina Davis out to like the Saturn desert and then she just rides into the house with a sandworm yeah. and eats him and then kind of jumps off of it. We obviously don't see it because the CGI isn't good enough. And then he's just gone. Like, it's just like, okay, like looks yeah. like he was going to win. Then she came through with the sandworm and it's over. Cool. Like, yeah, they just, they didn't, they needed the movie to be over. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Sand, sandworm let's go that's why they've been in the whole movie up until now I guess you know it's like it's not really yeah. about like it's not even about at the end like oh if Beetlejuice is like this villain character how do we defeat him or like what's the way to uh, teach him a lesson or something no it's just like he's just gonna get eaten by a sandworm like he's yeah <laughs> exactly I wish I wish she got that third Beetlejuice in like you know like you know how at the end there's the, she says it once and then uh, Beetlejuice zips her lips and then she says it again and he throws a uh, like a metal plate on her lips I wish after the sandworm had eaten Beetlejuice she jumped down and just looked at the hole and was like Beetlejuice and then the who starts playing and it would be fucking crazy like <laughs> that would be crazy bro also speaking of the ending they have announced I feel like it's been announced a few times but the, that there's allegedly going to be a Beetlejuice too Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Where do you think they could take it? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't, don't know. I, everyone is so much older now, though, is the thing. They've moved on so much and done so much since then, and I don't really know what else you could do with it. I feel like it'd be one of those sequels that would kind of just be the same basic movie again. Like, I don't know. Yeah, like, I, I would... Probably worse, like... I would love. I would obviously love to see see Winona Ryder in anything. I would love to see Michael Keaton back in the role. But like, it, it's kind of. I, I like that it's just one thing. You know, it's kind of a a good lightning oh, yeah. in a bottle I'm kind just of thing. Because um, on the IMDb, it says that like they that you know when it says like announced, mm-hmm. it just says like on both Michael Keaton and Tim Burton's IMDb's it says that they've announced the Beetlejuice too. Which, yeah, I mean, in all likelihood, if they made it, it would probably be like all these other, like, many, many years after, like, studio shoehorn sequels. Yeah. But I do, like, 
I feel like there's a world where you could make a really cool Beetlejuice 2 that uses CGI at a proper capacity and blending it with like how awesome we can probably make some practical effects now. And I think Michael Keaton could probably reprise the role. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really, obviously again, since the movie's not really like a narrative, it's not like I'm like, Oh, like they could explore this plot line or whatever, you know, it would just kind of have to be like a new adventure. Mm -hmm. So I would be interested, but I mean, it's not something that I'm like uh, crossing my, crossing my eyes for, you know, I don't even know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily know where they would go with it. Maybe it's like Beetlejuice is terrorizing another family or something. I, I don't know. But again, I feel like they just, with the 80s charm of the models and the real practical effects, um, I think is kind of what makes the what makes the movie work um, so many years later because it feels so cemented in 88 in, in a good way. Um, and it has that energy to it. And everyone's just around, like everyone in this movie has a younger energy uh, that plays off of one another really well. Um, and I don't know if it would be the same when they're much older. I mean, Winona Ryder's a, you know, in her forties now. I just don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know how how it would. I don't know how it would work. Um, I would. But, I would love to see what adult Lydia looks like. Did she straighten out, or is she still like the goth queen of the universe? I'll- <laughs> I, I, I don't that would be one character I'd be curious about, but yeah, maybe I don't know. It's all I, up in the air. Yeah, who who knows? Um, all right. Well, we've talked uh, this movie to death. Obviously, we love it a lot. I want to kind of close out by talking about how this movie for you um, really embodies the spirit of Halloween and adds to your yearly Halloween season. Yeah, I mean, I think not to say it in like too plain of terms, but I think it's kind of just like the ultimate vibe for Halloween. Like you can get any group of friends together who like are into, into spooky stuff whatsoever. Just like throw this on with a couple beers. And I feel like you'll have a good time if you're just like, even like chatting throughout kind of like uh, joking along with the movie and shit. Like it just, it has so many, it has all those practical haunted house elements to it with some of the best set design practical set design and also i wanted to shout out the costume designers aggie gerard and uh, aggie gerard rogers was the costume designer and uh, steve laporte and v neal won the oscar that year for best hair and makeup and it was very well deserved as like mm-hmm. i think i mean obviously i think michael uh, beetlejuice is like one of the most hardcore costumes you can do but it is like one of the best halloween costumes ever and really shout out to them for coming up with that coming up with the face distortion sequence. I'm, I'm sure that must've been so much fun to machinate and think about how to execute. And I just think, yeah, I mean, the movie feels, it feels like the movie version of a, a really fun haunted house. I feel like that's kind of why it's such a good Halloween movie, you know? Absolutely. I think it is one of the more, uh, especially for our generation, it's a good party movie because of how many quotable lines there are. You could jump in at any point and everyone has that certain relationship to it at our age. Um, and that also, I mean, the spirit of getting together with your friends and like this can, this adds to it. Um, I mean, this, this movie isn't necessarily about getting together like with your friends and like showcases that, but that's what a lot of people do with this movie. I mean, it was on Netflix for so long and it's so easy um, to find. And by 
you know, putting it on, everyone is joking around with the movie. It's very, it, and it moves and it's, um, it's extremely light. And, um, yeah, you can just kind of vibe with it. And it's kind of like, you know, you can, I also like, I'm going to rewatch like the shining during this month to like have the vibe, but like, obviously as much as that's like a classic horror film, it's a movie you kind of have to sit down and like watch, you know? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this, this, right. Like you said, it's like a great party movie. Like you can have a bunch of people over, you know, maybe smoke a little something, drink a little something and you just have a good time with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a very good, uh, it has a good positive spirit to it and it brings an energy, uh, to, to any group outing. And I, and like I said before, there's great costumes. There's, uh, the fact that, you know, the haunted house and then everything, uh, you know, gets shaken and it's a fun adventure. Like it's, it doesn't stop, and it's one that you can go back to and just have, you know, equal amounts of fun each time. Yeah, and I do say I feel like, uh, like streaming services are missing out on an opportunity by not having like I've, I couldn't find this anywhere on streaming. I don't know about you, but I had to I bought it off Google Play or like, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of right now it's only on demand, and I feel like this should be one of the movies that is like, like I would be like if I was a streaming service, I'd be like clawing to get this on my service this month because like it's. I feel like you just get viewers, you just get your, you just get people to watch it, you know? Yeah, especially this month, they get the whole Halloween collection together. And again, it's not even, it doesn't even take place on October 31st, but it like, it has the, the look, like it's dark for most of the movie, but it feels like it's fall, like it's colder and it's just later in the year. It's, it just has that aura around it. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thank you so much for having me on the pod, dude. Definitely enjoyed getting to rewatch and re-experience this movie with you. And awesome, we finally got to do one of these. Absolutely, my man. Thank you so, so much. This was great. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Huge thanks to Alberto for calling in. We've been trying to get him on this podcast all year, way back when we were doing the LA session, so it was good to have them actually come on. If you're looking for more Frankly I Love Movies content, please go follow us on Facebook at Frankly I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and you can follow me on Instagram at joshvelljosh21 for all new and exciting updates on what's going on in my life. Frankly I Love Movies is part of the Orion Valley Productions podcast network where you can listen to our two other podcasts, Ravnica Avengers, our real play D&D podcast, and our brand new Attack on Titan recap podcast with Brian Taborny, Sullivan Harris, and Ben Mannix called Tea Time with Titans. New episodes of that come out every single Wednesday. And finally, come back on October 31st for our 50th episode of the podcast and the finale of the October section of Hello Thanksmas, where Lexi Cutmore is back to talk about one of the greatest horror movies of all time, Halloween. Until then... I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.